Good afternoon and welcome to the City View podcast with me, Andy Sylvester, the editor at City AM. We've got a bumper session today, it being the spring statement, of course, of Rishi Sunak announcing a raft of measures to address, or at least try to address, the cost of living crisis. And we'll also talk to the boss of the World Health Organization Foundation, the independent, almost charitable arm of the WHO, looking to raise funds for humanitarian disasters, not least the one we see unfolding in Europe. Ukraine. Not much on the corporate front today, as you'd expect. Most companies keeping their powder well and truly dry, with focus instead a few stops down the district line in Westminster, where Rishi Sunak delivered the spring statement. I'm joined by Jack Barnett, our economics and markets correspondent, and Sasha O'Sullivan, our opinion and features editor here at City AM. Jack, it's been a day of, of fairly grim numbers, I think it's fair to say, but why don't we set the context? Because really the story of the spring statement started with inflation figures this morning. Yeah, so we had a fresh inflation print uh, out from the ONF and just before Sunak stood up at the uh, dispatch box. Uh, we've got CPI uh, now running at another 30-year uh, high of 6.2%. Uh, and then within that, so for people who still follow the retail price index, which is the old uh, measure of the cost of living that that topped um, eight percent. Um, so it was a pretty pretty damning um, stage to be set before we obviously stood up and then uh, announced a, a raft of measures at about half twelve um, today. And then we had fresh um, forecasts out from the um, the Office of um, Budget Responsibility. Now there was quite a bad cut to GDP growth of this year. It was downgraded by two point two percentage points. Uh, to three point eight percent. It was uh, initially before that. It was, it was, um, it was six percent. And the main reason for that is that inflation is just a lot higher than what people were penciling in back in October. CPI has mm. been upgraded for the year to seven point four percent from four percent back in October, mainly driven by. Well, I think the thing to notice is that the the OBR has only really captured a very very small fraction of the impact of the Russia Ukraine war on inflation in the UK. Um, a lot of the um, the upgrade was just driven by this um, consistent supply crunch and then a bit of um, obviously the uh, impact of the war on energy prices spiking. So I think you could, you know, you could probably safely assume that CPI is actually going to trend a lot higher than what the OBR have got penciling at the moment. Um, mm. And there were some lines in there about the um, the off-gen um, price cap increasing by about 40% in October on top of the 54% increase they got in, um, in April. So, you know, if gas... And oil prices continue their ascent that they have been over the last month or so. Um, that CPI forecast is probably going to be upgraded again um, come October time as well. So what that sounds like to me is a full-blown cost of living crisis, which was the context for Rishi Sunak's announcement. Um, we knew we were going to get a 5P, or we pretty much knew we were going to get a 5P cut to fuel duty. Um, lo and behold, that did in fact emerge quite early on in the statement. Uh, the Chancellor and the Business Secretary have also now written to petrol retailers telling them to, to pass that on as soon as possible. Hmm. Um, retailers themselves saying it might take a few days because obviously they bought fuel at a certain price this morning with it priced in. Um, not necessarily working on the theory that duty will be cut, so we'll see what happens there. Could be a bit of a political round over the weekend and into next week. We expected national insurance thresholds to increase but that was quite the rabbit that came out of the hat then, wasn't there, Jack? Yeah, so we obviously had the announcement that income tax, well, the basic rate of income tax is going to be slashed by a penny in the pound um, by uh, 2024 in what is probably being seen as um, Sunak's attempt to, to strengthen the Tory chances of winning 
um, the next election. Now, after Sunak obviously announces and no one was really expecting it, we um, we got the full OBR report out. Um, and in there, within the reads of that report, um, they published an analysis of um, the tax burden in the UK, which is it's basically mm. the proportion of um, national account taxes as a proportion of GDP. Now, back in October, when there was no tax cuts announced really, um, we had the tax burden rising to the highest level since the 1950s. Now, even with the one the one p income tax cut, even with the national insurance threshold being equalised with the income tax threshold, the tax burden is actually going to be higher than what the OBR was forecasting in October. So they've now got it, I think, in about four years' times, hitting um, 36.3%. Previously, it was 36.2%. That's the highest level mm. since the late 1940s. So even with these measures, which you know, were initially seen as easing the cost of living burden. Um, you know, it's not reducing the tax bill for most people across the country. It's actually increasing the tax people, uh, burden for most people across the country. And the main reason for that is, is that the the um, the freezing of the income tax thresholds, which I think have been frozen for about four years or so now, are basically mm. offsetting all the giveaways that he announced on income tax and national insurance. The main reason for that is, and obviously it's getting quite complicated now, is that inflation is just so high, it's dragging some people and in the income distribution into higher um, tax thresholds, which is then increasing their their tax bills. And just the yeah. fact that that's been held there for such a long period of time is basically going to offset all the um, the gains they would have made from paying lower national insurance and lower income tax. Yeah, fiscal drag is the, the technical term for that. I mean, you could... I was sort of playing around with headline ideas and one of them that we came up with was, was playing us for fuels. Um, there is an element of, it's too strong to say sleight of hand in the budget, but it was a very political budget, put it that way. Um, and Sastry, I'll bring you in now. He, Rishi was was cheered to the rafters there at the end of his statement by uh, by the Tory party backbenchers. Yeah. That was, you know, the penny off tax, the talking a good game on tax cutting. He did have to show a bit of leg to those backbenchers today, didn't he? And to the wider party and to wider, wider Tory voters because of all the things that Jack has outlined. Look, he did. Um, and I think that the fuel duty cut was, I won't say it was a cheap win, but I think it was the easiest win because you had quite senior Tory backbenchers such as Robert Halfon coming out over the last couple of days basically saying we need to have a cut to fuel duty mm. and there were you know this morning there were murmurings of exactly how much and some kind of downgrade of expectations from that 5p rise so i think when he did say that yes fuel duty will come down by 5p um per liter that was a relief to a lot of those tory mps and i think it it probably played very well um, I think as some of the numbers start to come out, there will probably be some discontent as Jack kind of sketched out for us earlier. I would um, gently disagree with my colleague. Um, I don't think it was actually such a rabbit to pull out the income tax cut. I think it was a rabbit that he said it now, but I think we were largely expecting that to come at some point between now and when the Tories would hope to have the next election. Because, mm. and you know, that's been much of what Sunak has been trying to do is to balance the fiscal position so that by the time they actually have to go to the ballot, 
they're able to say, look, we are cutting taxes. And he kind of managed to do both today by saying, we are cutting taxes, but we're not doing it for a little while. Um, and I think there was a sense from the Tory backbenchers of, okay, we are really looking forward to an election now and we need to kind of come together where there's been a lot of division. I think there is still some division um, on a different political level, but I think from an economic perspective, a lot of people are starting to look at these measures, not just in terms of what they mean for everyday people, but also will they help them get elected again? Yeah, it will be interesting if the legacy of five years of an 80 seat majority, 80 seat or thereabouts majority, Boris and Rishi Sunak is a penny off income tax largely wiped out by fiscal drag effects mm. because they've talked a tremendously good game about a transformative government doing all sorts of exciting things. That was notably absent today. There weren't the grand plans. There never really is supposed to be that in the spring statement. Save that for the budget. But as they look towards that election, the Tory party will know that they're they're probably going to have to go further than this mm. on the cost of living because although they've dealt with the fuel duty crisis a bit you know, today, although they've come up with a fairly sizable increase to the national insurance threshold today, although there is this promise of income tax help down the line and, you know, VAT being wiped out of solar panels, it's hardly the sort of big, huge package that is going to negate the impact of slowing growth. So that this is only a step in the, in a certain direction, Sasha, don't you think? And we'll probably see more pressure build on Sunak again, it as is. we see before all of these set pieces, for more giveaways come yeah. October. Yeah, and I, I think especially for those, you know, right at the bottom of the income ladder, the next few months is going to be a massive struggle. We had the boss of Iceland, Richard Walker, this morning saying that food banks were turning away, oh, sorry, food bank users were turning away things like potatoes because they actually couldn't afford to turn the gas on to cook them. Um, mm -hmm. And there was nothing in the spring statement today about universal credit. And I think, you know, last year we saw the 20 pound uplift scrapped. Um, and I think that over the coming months, there will be a huge amount of pressure on Rishi Sunak to introduce new measures. And we know from him introducing the national insurance hike, I think on a Tuesday, random Tuesday morning, that he's not yeah. against having fiscal statements outside of the normal calendar. Mm. Jack, very quickly, yeah. um, for me, the most interesting number, the most worrying number in the whole statement really is is trend growth which is back to well below two percent far sooner than i think we would have hoped in terms of the rebound and i guess that alludes to my previous question to sasha there's gonna have to be something um there's gonna have to be some good news on that before the next election if he wants to really move taxes further down or balance the fiscal position that we're in there is already commitments to you know, hike spending on everything from education to health. So something's got to give, right? Yeah, and I think that's been primarily driven by productivity growth just being a lot sluggish than people were expecting, particularly back in October and kind of reversing back to the trend that we saw um, before COVID. And, you know, Sunak has, he has kind of announced his intention is to try to stimulate business investment um, without actually announcing any uh, any uh, incentives for <laughs> that in the tax plan, just saying that they're going to review the R&D landscape um, they're going to try and tweak um, the apprenticeship levy regime and things like that just to try to get businesses out of this sort of quandary of just not investing anything. And obviously, as 
a lot of people um, have written about that. The main, well, one of the main drivers of productivity growth is just getting businesses to invest in capital equipment to make their workforce more productive. Um, yeah. You know, there's a there is definitely a there's an economic debate to be had on whether or not, um, you know, pushing the tax burden to the highest level for the best part of seventy years or so is a good way to get businesses um, investing. It's it's obviously not something. Um, which uh, businesses are probably uh, were looking for no. at this spring statement, but I think the main driver, you know, to get this trend growth of GDP back to levels even before we saw um, the financial crisis, where it's actually quite healthy levels, we need our businesses to be investing, and in order to do that, the tax regime has got to be more welcoming, and that's something they'll look for in October. Yeah, absolutely. I mean. I feel like a stuck record sometimes in my leader columns at City AM writing the easiest way to stimulate investments to let businesses keep more of the cash that they make. But mm. um, we will keep on that point. And um, Jack, Sasha, thanks so much for joining us. And we'll turn now away from the spring statement um, to something rather more long-term, shall we say, let's put it like that. And Neil Sony is the head of the World Health Organization Foundation, which is the sort of charitable arm of the World Health Organization. It was set up in May 2020, an interesting time to set up anything within the WHO as it looks to diversify and increase its sources of funding. And Neil, thanks for joining us. Great to be here, Andy. Thank you. Why don't we start from the start, I suppose. Um, let's talk about the rationale for the foundation coming into life, because obviously it was established May 2020 when there was an awful lot going on at the WHO, I think it's fair to say. Um, but in a way, the COVID-19 crisis, and we'll come on to talk about other crises that have emerged since then, was a good example of why the foundation needed to come into existence, I guess. That's right. Dr. Tedros, who leads the World Health Organization, recognized early prior to COVID, honestly, that the public sector can't face these existential challenges alone. And we need all sectors cooperating. We need the resources of the private sector working right alongside WHO. That's why the foundation was created. And that has proved particularly relevant in the fight against COVID-19 and now facing the latest health crises that we all have to tackle together. Yeah, absolutely. And no conversation at the moment is complete without without looking at what's happening in the Ukraine, as you alluded to there. Give us an example of it, sort of the real world effect of the foundation right now, because I know there is an appeal um, because of the huge amounts of damage that's been done to the healthcare infrastructure in the country. Indeed, that's right. In a conflict, healthcare is disrupted. And the people who were affected by that conflict need access to life-saving medicines in response to the trauma associated with the conflict, also simply to maintain medical care, whether it's making sure that women can deliver babies, whether it's to ensure that surgeries can proceed, whether it's to retain access to the medicines required for people living with HIV or diabetes. In Ukraine today, 10 million people have been displaced, 10 million people. Three and a half million people across the border, they are now refugees, but an even larger number of people who are internally displaced. WHO plays a role that I don't think is well appreciated, honestly, to work directly with the ministries of health around the world, including in Ukraine, to deliver healthcare, to deliver medicines inside Ukraine, to mobilize emergency medical teams. WHO has put out an appeal for $57.5 million which is a relatively small portion of the appeal by the United Nations of more than a billion dollars 
to mm. ensure that it can deliver that medical care, only $8 million has been contributed. So one of the priorities of my organization, the WHO Foundation, today is to pound the pavement and make sure that we can raise more resources to help WHO deliver that life-saving care. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is startling figure startling sort of we hear so much about the amount of aid going into ukraine be it military or humanitarian but that medical figure is is quite striking what's when you are pounding down those doors to donors to charities what's the argument that that you give well one is to make clear what that money is being used for there's a lot of skepticism in giving even a moment like now when people are trying to respond to the crisis in ukraine more than half the majority of that money that appeal that i just mentioned is simply for supplies it's mm. for trauma kits it's for surgical clamps it's for essential medicines it's for generators to keep hospitals going and that's part of the message to potential supporters which is that these are the the dollars and cents or euros and pence that are uh, that's how the funds are being used yeah, no, absolutely. And I guess in well, in any kind of global organization that is involved in humanitarian assistance, whatever umbrella phrase we want to use today, you probably pick better ones than I. You know, there are always questions about how the money is spent and, and where it goes. Is that something you're really focusing on? Because I presume you're talking to, you know, individuals and corporate entities that have very strict rules on where money is spent and what they spend money on. Are you having to be really close on that and really tight on, on making sure that you're clear on where the money is going? We are. First and foremost, what we're trying to do is tell a story of outcomes and make clear what the WHO can achieve with investments, whether in the response to Ukraine whether in fighting COVID-19 or its many other programs, we want to tell the story of success of WHO and the value proposition, what the WHO does uniquely, how it is a critical part of the puzzle. And once we can talk about those outcomes, if you're talking to a business uh, or a private sector leader, I've spent time in the private sector and public sector. Mm. They want to understand, well, how is that money going to be used? What are, you, what are the line item expenditures? So that's not the leading edge of the appeal, but we have to be able to answer those questions credibly and transparently in order to justify investment. And the leading edge of the appeal presumably is around, obviously, you know, the fact that we are all, as a general rule, um, in favor of people being healthier rather than otherwise. But the, the leading edge of the appeal, presumably, is something around the fact that a world without pandemics, a world where pandemics can be responded to quicker, a world where emergencies can be responded to quickly, where healthcare can be moved to where it needs to be at short notice, um, creates a safer world for everybody, including presumably for businesses, right? Yeah. Well, Andy, I need to recruit you to be part of the pitch. <laughs> but that's exactly right. We're all in it together. And we've never seen that more clearly than with COVID-19. The pandemic tells us clearly the numbers are straightforward, that until everyone is vaccinated, this pandemic isn't over. That as long as you have pools of unvaccinated people, even if they're on the other side of the world, those pools become a breeding ground for variants. Those variants have an easy time traveling to our side of the world. So we are in it together, and this is an opportunity, I hope, honestly, for greater solidarity so that these existential threats, which affect us all, that we're in it together uh, in responding to them and preventing them from being worse than they already are. Yeah, and my, I guess my last question is for the WHO as well. 
it was not, you know, it was not immune from criticism during the, the COVID-19 pandemic. A lot of that inevitably related to funding. And certainly people made connections between funding sources from state governments and the WHO response, whether those links were fair or not will park for another day but for the who having not just an increased amount of cash flowing into the door that allows them to do good things it's also helpful for you to have a diversified funding stream right that's exactly right certainly it's true that the who needs money from more sources uh, and that's part of what we're trying to do mobilize resources which include but are not limited to cash from businesses and philanthropists uh, the general public and on that point it's important to acknowledge that while businesses can and should pitch in financially and by the way receive a return mm. uh, just to tell a quick story andy the World Health Organization's program that reviews the safety and efficacy of technologies, including vaccines, has approved more COVID-19 vaccines than the US FDA or the European Medicines Agency. What that means, <laughs> because those approvals have been recognized by health authorities around the world, is that the WHO is making a direct contribution to the uptick in trade, travel, and tourism that is driving multi-billion dollars of business. So there's a, a, an inherent return on investment that businesses get by pitching in to that work of the WHO that doesn't have an associated conflict of interest, right? There's not a quid pro quo, mm. but there's a role the WHO plays that matters for business. In addition to financial contributions, businesses can pitch in. Uh, Google's done so in COVID-19, helping the WHO fight the infodemic, uh, the information mm. that circulates online that is inaccurate about COVID-19. Both of those roles from business are critical, but I don't want uh, your listeners to have the misimpression <laughs> that businesses need to come in and save the day when it comes to funding the World Health Organization. The WHO is a critical part of the international architecture that we all rely on. It's part of the United Nations, and member states, that is governments, need to do their part. There was certainly lessons to learn from the response to COVID-19, but all of the reviews of what the world did in the first months, now the first years of the response make clear that while all of us could have done better, we need to ensure adequate funding for the organizations on the front line, and that is the WHO. There was an independent panel for pandemic preparedness and response. It gave good feedback on what the WHO could do differently. The WHO has taken that feedback to heart and the IPPR made clear the WHO needs more sustainable funding in order for it to fulfill those roles. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think most people would certainly agree with that last statement. Anil, thanks for joining us. Just before you go, where should people go to find out more about the work of the WHO Foundation? Thanks so much, Andy, for asking. I would love for your listeners to go to ukraine.who.foundation. That would allow them to make a direct contribution to that appeal for the World Health Organization to deliver healthcare in Ukraine right now. They could also go to gogive1.org to make a $5 contribution to buy a vaccine for someone else in need so that we can achieve vaccine equity and end this pandemic. No, thanks, Anil. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. That was Anil Sony, the head of the World Health Organization Foundation. And that's all from us at City View today. My thanks to Jack, Sasha, and Anil for joining me. Um, and we'll be back again tomorrow. <laughs>